You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. What number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! heat of a woman possessed, possessed of an uncontrollable, unnatural passion, so all-consuming as to make the flames of hell mere glowing embers. Fuego, the insatiable, depraved hunger of a woman shorn of her mask of fidelity and respectability, and bared for what she really is, a crazed female animal on the prowl, a dehumanized creature grasping and clawing for instant gratification from any source and any sex. Fuego, a woman beyond help. The help of physicians or a husband's unswerving love, fighting frenetically to suppress the ravaging torments of a disease that drives her wantonly to perversion, madness, and self-destruction. is a story of a man as well. A distraught husband tortured by forces and events too overwhelming to cope with. Living a nightmare with only tenderness, understanding, and devotion to guide him out of a maze from which there can be no escape. Willing to sacrifice his own self-respect if only to insulate her and share in her ordeal. Fuego is a film the likes of which you have never seen before. Because it is the authentic story of a real person told with integrity and stark candor. It is as shocking as only real life can be without contrivance or false reserve. It is in fact so bold and frank that it was banned in the very country where it was made and its producer-director forced to flee in exile for having merely been the objective reporter of a case history heretofore only whispered in hushed tones. Fuego, starring Isabel Sarli, the voluptuous goddess of the South American screen. And Armando Bo, Argentina's leading producer-director. Suggested for mature adult audiences only. Fuego. A Haven International Pictures release. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining you once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. And back in the booth is Mr. Rod Lott. Fuego. 
Our exploration of 1969 continues this week as we head from Europe to Argentina to check out Armando Bo's Fuego. It's the story of Laura, who is played by the one and only Isabel Sarli. She's a woman driven by her passions. After she marries Carlos, played by Bo, she realizes what a hopeless nymphomaniac she is. The two work together to try to find a cure for her. We will be spoiling Fuego, so if you haven't seen it before, you have been warned. It's fairly easy to get, just FYI. I think you can find it over on YouTube, and you definitely find a dubbed version on archive.org. Heather, when was the first time you saw Fuego, and what did you think? I will say the first time I think Fuego ever came into my sort of sphere of, of like realization and awareness was... uh I believe reading about it or reading a mention about it in the incredibly strange film book that research put out years ago, which is an absolute cult film Bible. If anybody listening to this doesn't have it already, go grab it because it's essential. And then, of course, reading like interviews with John Waters, because he was a big fan of this film and a big champion uh, in general of uh, director Armando Bo and his films with Isabel Sarli. You putting this episode on the list though was finally the kick in the butt i needed to go actually see it like it's what i wanted to see for years but just you know there's 11 other movies that are always <laughs> you know like needing your attention oh my god i was not disappointed like ha- after having years upon years of hype for this film it's everything uh i thought it'd be and actually more like there's some there's actually some kind of cool swerves especially for those those of us who already kind of know and love the sexploitation genre, um, there's some twists in this movie that uh, you won't really see in a lot of other films, which uh, I definitely, definitely loved. How about you, Rod? Well, I also read Incredibly Strange Films, of course. I don't remember it being mentioned in there, but that's, I mean, that's like 25 years ago. The first time I would say I recognized it, if you remember in 2003 when Borders sold the uh, or gave away the extra weird sampler from something weird dvd like if you go and buy a something weird dvd from their store you got the sampler disc and at the time it was not available commercially so i went and got it watched that thing start to finish one night and the trailer for fuego was on there and um i hope in this day and age it's okay to say like she is my type so the very next day i went back to borders and bought Fuego and uh, got another free sampler disc, which I eBayed for an obscene amount of money, which is sad since you can buy the thing now on Amazon for like three or four bucks. But that was the first time. And that's so 2003. And I've watched it probably three or four times since. I also read the Incredibly Strange Movies book, and I don't remember this one specifically either. I definitely remember the exact first time that I saw it, which was in 2002 at the Maryland Film Festival when John Waters actually presented this. He does say, or at least he used to, I'm not sure if he still does, but he would uh, pick out a movie every year, and I think it was the Saturday night screening, would do like an introduction, would show the movie, and do a Q&A afterwards, and... It was always a real treat. Uh, he, I remember seeing Baxter there, uh, Sleeping Dogs Lie, the um, Bobcat Goldthwait film, Porno Theater, which is also called uh, The Cat with Two Heads. So it was always something great when he would show these movies. And my God, Fuego did not disappoint. And seeing Fuego with a packed audience, because he always packs them in, 
my goodness, was this a lot of fun. We just had a blast watching this movie. And I had never really experienced Isabel Sarli or Armando Bo before, but boy, oh boy, did it make me hungry for more. It's also discussed at length in Bill Landis and Michelle Clifford's Sleazoid Express book, which I recently reread. So talk absolutely about the, the audience response to this, too. So that fits right in with your, your experience. I am very surprised that there aren't more of these Armando Bo uh, films out there available for us to watch, especially because it sounds like a few of them were released here in the United States. Definitely Fuego was, but it sounds like a couple others were dubbed and released, and I'm having the worst time trying to find those. It is just uh, remarkable how rare these things are, and especially with English subtitles, it's just almost impossible. The only one I've seen for sale is Naked Temptation, which something weird also uh, has. And I'm kind of surprised that that wasn't the second feature on the disc um, with Fuego, because the one that is uh, not directed by Armando Bo, 70 times 7, doesn't even feature her nude. So it like, why watch it? <laughs> it's a boring movie. It's a really boring movie. <laughs> you are canceled, Ron. <laughs> it was at this moment that he knew he fucked up. Reading up about like Argentinian cinema in general, because Argentina has had like this thriving film community since the silent film era. Like they were like one of the absolute first Latin American countries to to kind of jump into film and make their own films. I don't know how much awareness has ever really been in the state. America's already kind of like sort of historically like an isolationist country in a lot of ways anyways. But like, I didn't even really think about Argentinian cinema until um, years ago seeing, which thanks to something weird video, which everybody should love and have a little shrine and altar to them in their house. The release of Feast of Flesh, which was uh, Emilio Vieira's film, which was originally titled Placia Sangrinto. And that film's brilliant. Uh, that was made, I think, just like two or three years before Fuego. And now I want to comb all of my film books because I feel like I know for sure I've read about Fuego in one of them, but now you guys have me doubting if it was in Research's book. So I'll be doing that after this recording. I can tell you, Heather, it is in there because I, I did run across it as I was doing my research for stuff. So I grabbed a copy and threw it into Dropbox for us all to revisit. But I think that was like yesterday. So it was a little late in the game. This film should be in even more film books, though, because it's great. But it's so weird that, you know, for a country that had uh, such a big film industry and such a notable one that only just like just seems like little kind of bursts of certain titles, you know, have kind of made it and remained in our consciousness. It seems seems like a real shame, really. When I know, too, they were under pretty heavy censorship. I mean, one, it was a much more of a Catholic country. Two, there was the Perón dictatorship that was going on, so you couldn't really be too open about things. I'll tell you what's new, Buenos Aires. This was definitely post-Ava Perón, and I think one might have been dead by this point i'm not sure yeah this was especially this film was really pushing boundaries but it was what 58 when Bo and sarley got together and they had the first nude scene in an argentinian film and it just caused such a scandal oh uh, yeah either of you watched the documentary carne sobre carne but they go into detail heavily about the the censorship and the time and most of the clips in the movie are 
taken from those those uh, scenes that didn't make it into the films. There's also a whole thing of what's legend and what's true. Like I was reading a book about um, about Argentinian cinema, or, or sorry, I should say Latino cinema, and they were talking specifically about the Bo and Sarli films, and they were saying this whole idea of Isabel Sarli saying, oh, my first nude scene, they shot it with a long lens. I had no idea that they could see me that far. And the author was like, well, actually, there are intercuts of close-ups, so it's not really true what she's saying. There were definitely multiple camera setups, so you just have to take a lot of stuff that they say with grain of salt. I can't believe a celebrity would lie. Never happens. We were just talking about Kevin Spacey before you got on the phone, so that we know that that never happens. I, uh, I love reading like uh, interviews though with Sarley where she she talks about just uh, her mother was like crying about the the nude scene and her you know you can kind of understand maybe why she had to fib a little bit because it's just you know her horror probably very incredibly religious mother <laughs> being like my little girl's naked in this film. And hitting her with boots. Yeah, beating her with these, ri- wasn't it riding boots? Oh my goodness. The sacrifices artists make for us, the viewers, we're very lucky. It sounds like a scene out of Fuego. Yes, it does. It, it does. Could be in this movie. This film, before we go into any actual details, the theme song alone makes this, uh, I think, a, a film worth seeking out. The music's amazing. Oh God, yes. Yes. It's, it's an earworm. I just kept looking for, if not the original songs, for somebody to have covered this stuff. I I can't see somebody not covering this, especially somebody like you know, uh, like an organ player. The organ music in this movie is incredible. It's so good. I and I tried to do like a little bit of a research because I was thinking like because the music's so good. In fact, in my notes, I have it as descriptive or described as Martin Denny's erotic fantasies. Because that's what it maybe, which, uh, and that's perfect because Sarley, she looks like, for anybody familiar with Martin Denny, like his covers would always have these just ridiculously gorgeous, kind of buxotic. Oh, yeah. She's right out of the quiet village. So I was thinking, like, surely this is like going to dig up like a whole ton of discographies and soundtracks. And the two people credited are as Bo himself, which is pretty cool. And it looks like he worked on a number of his films on the music side. Uh, but the organ playing is Umberto. Um, and I'm probably going to butcher his name. Ubriaca, um, or Brioco. Spanish sure. is not my, my main language, obviously, but, um, and the only, um, other real credit, he did one more piece of music with Bo on a film, but then he was credited on an album, but he's only, he's only, I could, I could only find him credited on like one album. Now, granted, how, how well, well represented it is Argentinian, Argentinian music from the sixties on Discogs. Who knows, you know, but, um, but yeah, I thought I would find a lot more because the music's stellar. It's very cocktail organ, and it's like wherever the, that bar is, I'm, I want to go there. Shazam was no help to me with this movie whatsoever. <laughs> I just kept holding up Shazam, and then I would like even put it with my earphones. It was just like, no, no matches the whole time. No matches. I'm like, oh, I hate you. It's very sad. This stuff should be much more readily available. And like I said, if not this original stuff, at least cover versions, but I could not find anything. And then, too, it's pretty difficult with the name of the main song being Fuego. I mean, that comes up pretty often in Spanish music. The theme song is so iconic once you've you know, seen the movie. 
I'm kind of surprised I, upon this most recent revisit, I didn't hear it as much in the movie as I remembered because you, afterwards you just, that sticks in your head for years. <laughs> the one credit I could find for Umberto was uh, he appeared on an album by a band called Los Fernandos uh, on an album called Boleros in Hi-Fi, which is a great, a great title. The internet is reliable some of the time. It would be an absolute gem to have the soundtrack get remastered and officially released. Along to go with the film, because the film's actually, it is easy to find, but it is out of print. I know something weird had that double feature with it on Image Entertainment, but I think that's out of print. As of today, it is available to buy new on HamiltonBook.com for $5.95 or $0.99. So buy it today if you don't have it. If it's still in print, go get it from something weird, preferably. Didn't I read that something weird is actually phasing out their physical media? Yeah, this is the last year that they're going to be doing that. So I need to win the lottery. The idea of Isabel Sarley kind of embellishing the story and having pretty much the same story to tell every single time she's asked about things. I mean, like celebrities do, we know that. It's very much the case for John Waters as well. The intro that is out there, you can find it on YouTube. The, apparently there was a show which seems to run very much along the lines of him introducing things at the Maryland Film Festival because he talks about Fuego. And then at the end, he's like, and next week we're going to look at Baxter. And I was like, oh, okay. So these are just like your favorite picks to do. And he's got like his little spiel that he gives. That spiel that he gives before the subtitled version of Fuego that that's on YouTube is the exact same spiel that he gave at the Maryland film festival. So, which is pretty darn funny that he just has his, I mean, we know, you know, he's a stand up to act as much as he is a director and he just pretty much repeats himself when it comes to different topics. Yeah. I love, I love the, like him quoting sort of the film critics of the time. And the, there was that one, that one writer that was talking about her bum and just how he he was he had questions about the quality of her ass because you don't really get a good look of it in, fan, in Fuego, but he was very happy to see her in another film and her her bum was fine. That was a major concern of the day, I can assure you. We'll have to find this this critic's grave and cancel him. Game over. I love the guy who said she makes Raquel Welch look like Twiggy standing backwards. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, as a film writer, that's the kind of line you kill for. Like, um, that's that's so good. I mean, the comparisons that uh, Waters makes between Armando Bo and uh, Russ Meyer are right there. You know, it, he is absolutely one hundred percent right. The whole idea of these films being very melodramatic. I mean, these films would cause Douglas Sirk to say, well, maybe that's a little much. The melodrama, the sexuality, um, the the very buxom uh, leading lady, I can really see those comparisons. I mean, taking something like, you know, Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens and watching that as a double feature with an Armando Bow film. Yeah, I can totally see that would that would be one hell of a night. I mean, I do get the Russ Meyer comparison totally. But I thought more about John Derrick, because John Derrick putting his wife, Bo Derrick, in front of cameras and being like, look how hot my wife is. Uh, that's what Armando Bo is doing, even though they were never married. That's exactly what he's doing. Look how hot she is. You can't have her. 
I can, but I'm going to drive you crazy. Oh, boy. I would say Amardo Bo is a better director, just judging from what goes <laughs> Derek's superpower, I think, was netting ridiculously beautiful women. Filmmaking, eh, but I think that's actually a cool comparison. It's, it's funny because when you read up on Bo, you do see the Russ Meyer thing brought up a lot. And like you might, I could see it though. I would say a huge key difference is that, um, obviously Meyer, not just because he, you know, was born in America, Meyer's voice, like his, his thumbprint is a hundred percent jocular, baseball playing American pie eating American like he is super American but also there's no Catholic guilt in his films I would say that would be the different and that's kind of actually something I thought was interesting about Fuego as we'll get into uh because Myers women um yeah especially as he went on are all just uh just they are they're they're not really there's not a lot of shame with the libido (laughs) with a lot of the meyer women they're just they're they're amazons they are just ferocious just you know i always thought he's a great feminist director personally but i know a lot of feminists would probably i'm probably canceled now saying that but uh that's fine game over i'll take it uh (laughs) because i love russ meyer but I love this too. Um, it would have been kind of cool to have a crossover with Sarley in a Meyer film. But um, but one thing that's really captivating about the Bo Sarley story is that yeah, I mean they were never married, but they she was pretty much faithful to him till he died, and rarely ever worked with other directors because of that. Like she she was that loyal to to Bo, even though he never divorced his wife. Though with Meyer, I've noticed the film that. Uh, of his that gets compared the most to Fuego is Vixen, which Vixen's awesome. That would be another double bill I would love to see. Though, again, like, the lead Vixen, she's, I think, a lot less apologetic. She comes from a place where she wants to destroy people, I think. Oh, yeah. And she makes that with a fish. I mean, yeah, yeah. as crazy as Fuego gets, you can't really beat the uh, fish Tarantella uh, from Vixen. And plus, there's no racist subplot either. Vixen's nuts. God bless Russ Meyer, but God bless Armando Bow. Like, oh, we we got we got to get into this, get into the meat of this movie. Get on with it. Poor Lara has a problem that she is a nymphomaniac, but it seems like she is eh, maybe kind of quelling her desires a little bit because she's got herself set up in a house with a housekeeper question mark who is Andrea, and Andrea is this older lady who just absolutely loves. Lara. And I kept getting a real Mrs. Danvers vibe from her. I kept thinking of Rebecca and Rebecca's underwear. And I can see like Andrea taking around like the new Mrs. Danvers and being like, and these are Laura's under things, you know? (laughs) 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 But they've got a pretty good. I got a kind of Lori Metcalf vibe. (laughs) Lori Metcalf. Yeah, I can see Lori Metcalf there. Yeah, Lori, but just in looks and that's all. Not anything. See, I love that we all, I think all three of us got a different vibe. I kind of got a Grayson Hall vibe off of her. Like, I actually quipped to uh, my husband, I was like, this is Grayson Hall's most erotic role. Yeah, <laughs> for all you, dark, all you Dark Shadows fans out there. I kind of love this character, though. Andrea is this, you know, she's an out lesbian, which is something, you know, you saw a little bit of in, uh, in film in the 60s, but usually not um, very favorably. Well, and I don't think that she gets 
favorably treated. There's all this talk about perversion and that it's really looked down upon, though she seems happy. Laura seems pretty happy, though Laura really seems to want a man. She seems very conflicted that she is in this lesbian relationship and she wants the meats. The best place for that is with Armando Bo as Carlos, who happens upon these two women one day while he's riding on the beach. We have the whole setup for the movie within the first five minutes of this being on screen, not including the credits and the incredible credit music. And um, the incredible typeface. Oh, uh, yes. Lego. It looks like the, um, if you remember the hot stuff comic book that Harvey put out, <laughs> the, the Richie Rich thing, the little devil, it, that's like that typeface to a T. Is it animated? Am I remembering that correctly? No, it looks like it is. Well, does it? It definitely looks like it should be, but I can't remember if it moves ever so slightly or not. But it, if it doesn't, it certainly has the personality that makes you think it does. The music's, the music's animated. It's by proxy. But uh, the thing I thought was cool, because like, in the first few minutes... Like, I went into it kind of expecting uh, Laura to be just this sort of just wanton she-devil. And there's elements of that, because, you know, we see her getting tailed off by Andrea by the lake, and Carlos is watching. And then, you know, she's, like, dancing with George, this guy named George, at a party, and they're obviously kind of an item a little bit. But he has to go off to a business meeting, and you got those Greek chorus those these two ladies like a brunette and a blonde just kind of making commentary she uses all of her men like toys this one today tomorrow another she'll find her man one day poor thing oh laura she'll need at least 10 i mean on paper it's catty but their dynamic just seems to be just kind of like oh wow like kind of good for her she's got money she wants a man but yet she cannot be faithful and says that to Armando Bo over and over. I love you, but I can't marry you because uh, I can never be faithful to you. And this is that trope that we've talked about in the past, the man who tries to fix the woman. And he tries to do that, but I think at some point he realizes that it's just beyond hope. And he even comes to the conclusion of, you can cheat on me if you want, I'm still going to love you. Which is really kind of progressive for 1969. Incredibly. Yeah, I mean, I kept I kept expecting it to go. And I think like most viewers would to go like some sort of super dark. And it does get dark, but in a different way, but to go like the way of that, like, old Kenny Rogers song, Lucy, like, you know, or was it Ruby? It's Ruby. Oh, Ruby, take your love to town. Yeah. yeah. It's like, but yeah, you keep thinking like it's gonna go there. But then it ends up kind of taking a different route, which I thought was cool. And the fact that she ends up actually legitimately falling in love with Carlos, that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, that becomes like her big thing in the film is that she loves this guy so much, but she just cannot be satisfied with just one man alone. That they get married, they have this wonderful relationship, everything seems to be going peachy keen, and then there's one day where she just can't take it anymore, and she just has to go out and prowl for a man. And this becomes probably one of the best montages that I've ever seen in my life of Isabel Sarley in this major mink coat walking around in the city and trying to seduce these men by showing her breasts and playing with her breasts. Oh my God. It is so good. I love this. You're canceled now. 
and it is definitely the scene of the movie. It's it's that's Fuego in a nutshell is that scene. It's um, just absolutely kind of startling when you first see it, and you know upon revisits, it's kind of hilarious. But in both instances, it's always kind of sexy at the same time. I love the guy who makes the you're crazy or she's crazy sign. Like he doesn't do the loop with his finger around the ear, but he like does this thing with his finger on his temple. And he's just like, what is going on here? (laughs) She likes to play with her breasts so much, not only in that scene, but through the whole movie. But it reminds me of a line of Steve Martin's in LA story, which is not a great movie. But his character says, I could never be a woman because I just stay at home and play with my breasts all day. And that that's exactly what she does. And her breasts are so sensitive. It's like she masturbates by rubbing her breasts. Because almost everything here has to be above the waist. You know, we're okay with above the waist nudity, but there's nothing going on below the waist a lot of times, which is pretty typical for softcore type of things. But it just is so funny that she gets so turned on by having her breasts played with. I kind of viewed it as like a practical, like a practical move too, because most of the time when she's doing it, she's covering a good chunk of her boobs, and I probably shouldn't call them boobs, whatever. <laughs> but like, we'll be canceled together as a group, so it's kind of like a, a form of you know a form and function, but uh, where it's you know the sexuality's there, it's in your face, but it's also there's more implied than anything else. Though, uh, I did think it was kind of bold. There is a scene where, you know, when Andrea is telling her off and she's like lower and kissing her hip and she's like, you know, that's pretty racy. But also I kind of like the fact that, you know, Andrea is not, Andrea is kind of almost like she's a bit older than, than Laura and not really like, I wouldn't say she's unattractive, but she's definitely not. And the, and usually in these kind of films, you would expect Andrea to look like, you know, Haji or Tourisitan or somebody like that, going back to the Meyer pool. And she's not like a Glamazon. Like, she looks like, some, you know, she looks like a maid. But I kind of like that. And the fact that also all the men in this film, except maybe for Bo, are kind of, they look like re- just regular dudes in a village. Like, this is, you know, these are all just sort of stout, middle-aged guys. Kind of grubbers, you know? They're kind of grubbertons a little bit. They all look kind of the same. The one that sticks out the most is during that montage and that greasy-looking guy that she finds in the woods and has sex with him. He's the only one that sort of stands out in the movie because everyone else just sort of looks like they are so real, so random looking that they sort of look alike he ended up becoming uh, or he might have already been an armando bow regular because he shows up in bewitched as another person uh, another guy that she's trying to seduce as well but we'll talk about that one a little bit later i would too i would show up that was one thing did you guys think it was a little unrealistic though that she had so few takers oh yeah totally this is Isabel Sarli, a former Miss Argentina, former pageant girl who's a total buxotic, showing her goods to you. She's clearly down for some action. And yet, you know, I do actually understand the guy that thought she was crazy because that man has probably had sex like with a crazy woman. That shit always seems hot on paper. I've had a lot of friends like when you have sex with the insane, there is a price to pay. 
the, the sex is probably not worth it. And he's like, I don't want her to bite off my dick or something like that. I don't know how crazy she is. You know, I don't want my fire, my house to get set fire to, you know, like it's, it's, it's sometimes it's better to play it safe. But the other guys, I'm like, and the guy that she goes to the woods with, he just leaves her. Yeah, that was so weird. Sorry, senora. I haven't any cash. It's not your money that I need. I want you right now. I can't stand it. I'm being consumed by the sexual fire inside. I need men. I need men. He reminded me of a young MC Ganey. I thought you were going to say MC Hammer. (laughs) No, he didn't have the pants for MC Hammer. Please Hammer, don't hurt him. Also, please don't be MC Hammer from the Pumps in a Bump video. Jesus, that's uh, the only thing more polkertudinous than Isabel Sarley's bosoms would be Hammer and that thong. I can't unsee it. That was another thing, like the whole wood sequence and with her kind of going off with these random men. Another thing I noticed that made this definitely different than, say, like an American equivalent like an american uh, sexploitation film is it never there's it never gets rapey and never you know i kept thinking it was gonna kind of you know especially going off with strange men you know like is she gonna end up going with a guy that's real violent or you know and it never quite goes there which which i don't mind (laughs) it's good not to have things be totally dark sometimes but they definitely got dark with her wanting to basically die because she can't control herself her urges are send her into this depressive state which is really surprising like you would think okay yeah she's going to be happy getting laid all the time but no this is a real struggle for her she just cannot handle how horny she is and that she wants to be faithful to carlos and yeah it's just it's kind of a nice thing that it's not it's exploitative but there are real things that are going on in here. There, there is this whole, like, I really want to be faithful to my husband, but I can't. And so I, I really want to kill myself. So she's got that scene when she's on the roof and thinking about throwing herself off or, you know, he, when he beats her into submission, it's just like, she thinks that she deserves it, which is a terrible thing, but that's her state of mind. Your hard drive is filthy, right? We got your computer back. I mean, it is, it is dirty. It's not unlike a drug addict who wants to get clean, but cannot get clean. And that's the film is not trying to be that heavy, but that's not out of line with addiction in real life. Andrea is almost like an enabler. You know, she's the one who's always there with her at home and playing with her, running a feather over her breast, getting a real turned on. I mean, Andrea's getting something out of this relationship. I thought Laura was as well. So when Carlos comes in, is just like, you're out of here, Andrea. That becomes one of the most heartbreaking scenes of the film for me is her getting dismissed by Laura. Like, I don't believe you, Carlos. I have to hear it from Laura. And when Laura tells her to leave... I just wanted to cry. I felt so bad for her. I did too. Especially because Andrea seemed to really love her just as she was. Like, I mean, she wasn't always happy about her going out with dudes, but at the same time, like she kind of remained romantically faithful. You know, I mean, she's there with her sexually too, but she also has moments where I love you and don't get married. And, you know, there's a lot of angst with her. And it's funny because I feel like we don't even really see, we don't see Laura have real angst about her condition until she marries Carlos. Like she kind of almost seems happier in the early part of the film, which is sort of being able to date different guys and be with Andrea. It doesn't seem to get super desperate feeling until she's married. And then, you know, we go from seeing her in the beginning with guys like George, who's like this 
well-dressed businessman, socialite kind of guy to like, you know, some greasy dude by a bus <laughs> that takes her out to the woods, you know? So I don't know. I mean, the thing I do like about this, the Andrea character, even though it does things to you and sad for her, is it never goes to a point. I feel like, again, if this was an American film, Andrea would have either killed one of them out of a jealous rage. You have like the murdering sort of trope of the murderous homosexual from this era, or she would have killed herself. And instead, we actually get to see her live and go off with her life. You know, I like to think she found a, a similarly big breasted Amazon that was down. And didn't need a man, just you know, got some sex toys. Come on. It really kind of speaks to this idea of like marriage as a trap rather than uh, a blessing. Because, yeah, it's, she just cannot handle being monogamous. And it's just like, okay, well, do you have to be? Is that what's expected of you? I guess in 1969 Argentina, yes. But I think she, yeah, to your point, she would have been much better off had she not said to Carlos, you know, you are the one for me, and just kept playing the field forever. Well, consider the source. I mean, Armando Bo was married throughout his life, but yet cheated on her his whole life with Isabella. Maybe that is uh, part of, you know, the movie is him expressing that thought that marriage is a trap for him in that way. And there's this weird reliance on doctors, like having to go to a gynecologist, going to a psychiatrist around Argentina, and then also flying all the way to the United States to see another psychiatrist, only for that psychiatrist to say the earlier guy was right. Basically, you just wasted an entire trip to the U.S. to find out that the first guy that you talked to was 100% right. There's nothing that any of these people can do for her. And again, that puts her in this state of, oh my God, I, I'm a terrible person. I should just jump off of this building. The thing that cracked me up, even I know it's not funny, but it was funny to me, is that first scene, the first sequence with the Argentinian doctor, where he literally refers to nymphomania as a neurosis in the genitals. Because when I think neurosis, I think like, you know, George Costanza. I think, you know, just, you know, just being neurotic and I could just picture just little genitals being just like, you know, oh, I'm not good enough. Very telling that his explanation of nymphomania only applies to women. And it's only within a certain, the most fertile period of time as a woman, of course, like from like 20 to 40, you know, and uh, so it's just like, yeah, if a man wants to get laid all the time, he's just a dude. And also, of course, you know, like with the, with sort of like, gender roles and culture too it's sort of the other thing where if if you have this kind of device where if a woman wants to be a wanton it has to be a malady as opposed to just wanting to have a good time but you do they do have the angst and you do feel for her which i like like she's you know she's a person she's not just as you know a hot lady which she is but but she's also you know this this woman that's gone through a lot of angst and uh I did love the New York. There's some great, just like some B-roll of her walking the streets of a pre-gentrified 60s era New York City, which I always love seeing. Oh, that was fantastic. Totally. And yeah, to Water's point, I mean, you can almost hear the girl can't help it as she's walking along. Oh, my, I was, I felt so vindicated to listening because I listened to the intro after the movie. And because the whole time I kept thinking, she's like a hot Dawn Davenport, like the hair and the makeup. And then he pretty much, yeah, that was like an inspiration for Divine's makeup and female trouble, obviously pre-acid being thrown in the face. But 
Um, I kept hoping, like, when she got to New York City to have some kind of U.S. versus Argentina sexploitation, like, crossover, like, Bruce Lee versus Satan or some shit. But instead of that, it's like, you know, Fuego versus Richard Jennings from the Flesh trilogy by Michael and Roberta Fenlay. This is probably only just me. I just thought she's going to get in the car and it's, she's gonna, you're going to hear Michael Finlay just be like, hello, you strange whore, like that. And I'm like, oh my God, yes. <laughs> I'm probably, I may be the only person on the planet that would want that. But um, luckily for Laura, her, her fate isn't that bad because, yeah, Richard Jennings was a very naughty man. <laughs> we have to talk, go back and talk about the guy in the college scene. That. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. And that kind of, here's some words I've never said before in my life. That reminded me of Deep Throat. And like the seed of the idea of that movie is here, just a touch. But the, that that entire scene is takes this movie to another level of bizarreness. Yeah, when he talks about a neurosis of the genitals, I was surprised that he wasn't like, oh yeah, her clitoris is in her throat. I mean, it's that kind of hackneyed medical speak that I was just like, okay, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. This does feel like the seeds of uh, Deep Throat are, have been planted here. See, I feel like the scene of Deep Throat was a lot easier to swallow. The doctor in Fuego is kind of, he kind of was very sort of sinister looking to me and very uncomfortable looking. And then he has these yellowy gloves. Those gloves looked horrible. I'm like, I would not want that anywhere near my lady parts. You know, it's definitely Harry Reams is a huge step up. Plus he's got that cute accent. He's all like, there you are. There it is. You little bugger. Like he's so, you know, he's so charming. Like, yeah, all three of these doctors feel like they're cut from the same cloth. You know, they've all got the glasses. They've all got the same manner. They're all old white guys. It's just like, okay, I think I see a pattern here with the patriarchy. When he's talking to the American doctor, I thought there'd be like a little cute scene, though, where yeah, Carlos leaves and the doctor kind of scoots out of his desk and like she's under the desk. But that doesn't happen, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> No, instead, he makes the major mistake of, rather than saying, why don't you stay in the hotel room, he says, why don't you go out shopping, walk down Broadway. Perfect time to get picked up by this other old white guy who is just uh, such a sweet talker, you know? Hey, baby. Hey, you there. Come over here. Come on. <laughs> I won't bite you. Come on. Don't be afraid. <laughs> here, get in. Hey, you are beautiful. What are you doing out here all alone, huh? I was just looking around. Want a ride? Come on. Don't stand on ceremony. You seem to be a foreigner. You from out of town? I'm from South America. Oh, you're visiting New York. I'll show you the city, okay? Okay, let's go. I love him. He was such a mook. He's like, I won't hurt you. I won't. Come on, baby. Like, he's, oh, he was great. Like, also, that is not a man you ever get near, girl. Oh, my God. It's amazing she didn't end up in a dumpster. Also, how dumb is Carlos and naive to be, after he's had all these diagnoses to let his wife, let, I hate using that word, but you know what I mean? Like, encourage her to go out by herself in New York City. I'm surprised she didn't end up at Show World dancing off in a booth or something. But, uh, it, and then just be like, now try not to give into temptation. Like mental illness works that way. In his defense, a lot of people in real life, you know, mean well, but they'll say things to people like, we'll just be happy, you know, like that, that fixes things like depression or being bipolar. So. 
but no, instead they go back to Argentina and they're up on top of uh, one of the many mountains in this film. And I did notice there's a real elemental theme to this movie because we start with her in water and we've got a lot of water scenes, a lot of things taking place by water. And then, uh, of course, with the title of the film being Fuego, we get many, many close-ups of fires, especially it's a good time when things are happening to just pan that camera over to the fire that's happening and just be like, see? The, uh, you get it? This is the fire. No. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. When she gets so hot, she has to tears. cool herself off with snow. In the um, something weird cut, and this is different from the John Waters version you sent with uh, the host segments. There's not. There's a scene in something weird that is not in the waters where Armando Bo proposes marriage. And her response to that is to rub snow all over her chest. And that either it's like just a line or maybe a whole scene is cut from Waters' version. But so that's what she does. She doesn't really answer. Is that a yes? I don't know. Yeah, that's why I was shocked she ended up getting married to Carlos because it seemed like their sort of their early courtship was him immediately wanting to get serious and her just kind of being coy or, or at times even just telling him like, I can't be faithful. You know, I mean, that's the thing. She's always honest with him, like from the beginning, which is, which is kind of why at times I got frustrated and not with the film, the film's great, but with him as a character, because it's like, well, you can't really get mad at her. She told you how she was, you know, it's not like marriage is going to, you know, like anything just automatically changes who somebody is they're still going to be them and have their pluses and minuses and all that. But that snow scene is amazing. Something that hits me though, do we ever see her and Carlos in bed making out and making love? It always seems like they're like on a snow hill or on a beach or in front of the fire. Like I think the only people we see her in bed with is Andrea or Andrea and um, the electrician, which I, (laughs) I love. Oh God. When he's confronting them, and that poor schlub is running down, and he's you know, he's like the men in the village stay away from the right. Her <laughs> reputation is known. I'm like, these guys are these guys not heterosexual? Like, come on, this is Bill Sarley. I figured it'd be like swarming, like you know, like Frankenstein's castle or some shit. But instead, of torches are all carrying condoms. We're like, yeah, you know, gonna go hook up with Isabel. If you're a real man, you don't need condoms. You do- oh, gross. <laughs> Some of those guys needed to be wrapped in a full body condom. <laughs> yeah, I had in my notes that the guy, the electrician, looked like uh, Vincent Gardenia. Where's the lie? I mean, that's I'm surprised. Yeah, if this again, if this is American, she would have had a hot sex scene with Vic Tabak. That's kind of the quality. We got male dudes in this universe. They're all male. Except for Armando Bo, which I wonder if that's on purpose. Where he's like, "I'm the director. I'm going to be the hottest dude in this movie." <laughs> Oh yeah, it's part of his his unwritten contract. It's just it's surprising. Like here's this guy with a hook hand, and he's you know <laughs> he's like, all these like deformed dudes, and then Armando Bo. Well, I like that he knew his limitations. He's like, I may not be the best actor, but I work for cheap. I saw that. That's her whole death wish that gets repeated. It's like I always love it when films because everybody I think when people especially they don't know sexploitation films just have this like. 
just very over kind of wrong-headed overview of them. And it's like, no, I mean, a lot of these films in the genre will have kind of surprisingly sort of dark twists. And, you know, a film, you can have like sex and death, eros and death. And, and we definitely get that a lot here as the film, as we get towards the end. Yeah, there's a scene when they're up on top of the mountain and he's got a gun and he's it reminded me of old yeller. It's like, she's got the, the hydrophobia and he's got to put her down and it just becomes this really, and it doesn't help that the music, a lot of the music is this organ music. So when it comes up, it is just like, this is a soap opera. And this is one of the most soap opera scenes where they're working out this whole thing. And then surprise, surprise. No, he's like, nope you know what? I have your heart. I know that I have your heart. You can go see other men puts the gun away. All right. They hug, hug it out on top of this mountain. And then she ends up going to church and praying and then putting on a white gown. And I think she just jumps off the mountain as one does. Then the most surprising thing is that she comes back as a ghost. I had completely forgotten that she comes back as a ghost and then he ends up killing himself and they are together forever as spirits. And I guess, you know, we have to go back to what we've learned in the movies, which I believe is another John Derrick title that ghosts can't do it. Uh, <laughs> oh God. I forgot about that. I think willingly. Yeah. I always forget about that ending, which is so strange, but it, it does come from nowhere. So it catches me by surprise every you know, five years I watched this or whatever, but it does make me wonder, can she be faithful in the afterlife? I mean, certainly she's got to be right. I hope so. Heaven and all its rules, assuming they go there. She just suicided and so did he. So they should be going to hell. But with her diaphanous gown and all that, I'm just like, she looks like an angel to me. Oh, man. Now I kind of wish there would have been Fuego, too, where it's sort of like the devil and Mrs. Jones, too. Where Justine's like, you know, she's in hell, and I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just getting it on. Yeah, it's such a somber ending, but so, but kind of poetic. It's very unusually both twisted and sweet at the same time. And it ends fast, man. Once, once he kills himself, it is just, bam, the end. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> the movie begins quickly and ends quickly. Like their courtship, like you mentioned, is so short. And then they're together. And then, yeah, that ending. Well, the movie's not that long either, is it? It, it feels like 70 minutes. It might be longer than that, but it just it moves very fast. I think it's about an hour and a half. But it, yeah, you're right. It does. It does move quickly. I never feel like anything drags in this. Maybe her mink coat on the ground, but that's it. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third... A little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com 
and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers, both Android and iOS. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories. And everything you wanted to know about core production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. And we were talking about Fuego, and you know, I mentioned that this was another 1969 film, and I could have chosen a few films from Armando Bo because he actually put out three movies in 1969. I mean, these movies were done very, very quickly, uh, <laughs> which I mean, you can kind of tell there's some rough edges with these movies. I was very happy. There is a version of his movie Bewitched from 1969, which is available subtitled. So if people haven't seen Embrujada, I highly recommend it. And it feels like that movie was very influenced by Rosemary's Baby, because the Isabel Sarley character in that one desperately wants a child and will do anything to get a child and then ends up somehow invoking the devil or a different spirit, but it basically is the devil. So this guy shows up all the time who's got a devil mask and big, you mentioned Vic Tabak earlier, big hairy Vic Tabak back and everything. (laughs) 
they do mention in the documentary that it, it was a direct response to Rosemary's Baby. Well, that's good. I'm glad that I was uh, picking up on that. And that's also got this twist of her husband ending up being gay, and so he can't give her the baby that she wants. Aww. Yeah, And he is lovers with the guy who uh, ends up having sex with her in the forest in uh, Fuego. So it, the, that, that dude shows back up again. Young MC Ganey shows back up again in that one. For anybody who's wanted to see MC Ganey and some man-on-man. Uh, man. It doesn't happen in Pennies from Heaven, but it definitely happens here. But we were talking before we even started recording, it's like, why are we having such a hard time finding these movies? I mean, all of these movies are fantastic. And Heather, you said, you know, if Joe Sarno can get these wonderful additions, why not Armando Bo? It would be fantastic to have a collection of these movies because they just are super entertaining. And so many are hard to find without subtitles or dubbing. I wonder if part of it, too, is that, you know, with films that were often kind of uh, promoted and pushed as exploitation in the States, that's already kind of an uphill battle for preservation because nobody considered that art. I mean, you know, regular big budget Hollywood films of the past, you know, people didn't think in terms of preserving for a long time, much less, you know, something that was viewed as um, like throwaway entertainment. But uh, but also you made the point, Mike, to me in that discussion that um, you know Sarno's American too, so that that probably helps. Um, and he has a bit of a cult following and has for a long time. He also had a huge career, a pretty long career in the states because he went into hardcore too. So I don't know if that helped as far as him having kind of a reputation as a filmmaker uh, in the states more than you know than Orlando Bow did. I don't know. There's got to be several factors, I imagine. Distribution's probably a big one, but also just, it's always kind of an uphill battle for people, I think, preserving films that aren't, you know, that weren't really respected when they came out. I'm kind of surprised, though, that there hasn't been any any releases, though, at least from Europe. Because it seems like, you know, when Sarley, when she was still alive, she got invited to all these film festivals over in Europe different places in Europe to celebrate and like, you know, their film and Armando's work in particular getting kind of a resurgence and more respect. Who knows? It always seems kind of like a mystery why some things get out and some things don't. I'm also surprised that there isn't more of a revival of Bo because his grandson is out there making movies and winning Oscars. He was one of the co-writers of Birdman a few years ago. So if you go out and type in Armando Bo in a search engine, you are going to come up with all kinds of things, especially one called The Last Elvis that he made in 2012. And then, yeah, he was a writer on Birdman. So we had uh, he he was up wow. at the the podium uh, accepting accepting his Oscar a few years ago if memory serves. I had no idea. Bo had so the original <laughs> the the original Armando Bo had uh, had a son that was in some of the movies with them, and then I don't think the grandson ever was in any of his movies. But yeah, he's been out there doing his thing for all these years. So you would think maybe he would want to say like let's go ahead and take grandpa's films and restore them. Or he may be totally embarrassed by them. Who knows? And I didn't realize he has the same name, Armando Bo. Oh, wow. Who knew? You knew, Mike. You knew. Uh, I only lucked into it because I kept saying, why is Birdman coming up when I'm doing these searches for articles? <laughs> Bewitched is one I definitely want to see just because of the, the horror aspect. But the other one I'm interested in 
seems like it might, it could be not officially a sequel to Fuego, uh, but it's definitely connected thematically. It's called Fever from 1971. She basically equates this horse. She gets turned on by horses, basically. Uh, she lives on a on a uh, ranch and watches the horses copulate, and it turns her on. She touches herself, uh, thinking of horse penis, and it's, there's like Ew. an inner cut <clears throat> between horses' uh, penises and her touching herself. And you know, I'm sure that wouldn't play wonderfully in the states, but <laughs> it's it's kind of out there. <laughs> And goes kind of, I, I think it does, it takes Fuego like one step further. Boy, no, Kate, talk about that. I mean, that's a few years before Barabchek's Labette. So that's kind of, kind of interesting, which I love Labette. That's an awesome movie. But, uh, wow. Yeah, that's, um, hopefully, like, you know, Mike, you doing this podcast, I always view as every, anything that any of us do and put out there is like planting a seed. So hopefully this is planting a seed for maybe more more resurgence, you know, maybe an uh, enterprising DVD Blu-ray company <laughs> getting, uh, getting their mitts on some prints. Yes. And, um, and we, we also know the three people you guys could have on your supplements. Just saying. <laughs> well, and Rod, you mentioned the documentary about them as well. And I think there were a couple docs about them. Uh, but yeah, the, the one that, actually got a little bit of notice was what was it flesh on flesh or carne on carne where's that dvd you know i would love to have that as far as here's a story of what was happening in argentinian cinema at the time and look through the lens of armando Bo. but yeah let's see that one with subtitles because the way that you and i watched it as far as youtube translate left a lot to be desired oh uh, yeah those subtitles are terrible <laughs> they even i think uh they even translated the title of the movie as meat over meat, which I guess, but yeah, carne celebre carne, flesh on flesh, the intimacies of Isabella Sardini or sorry, Sarli. Yeah. I would love to see that. And I, I want to say that there were, I mean, yeah, there are plenty of interviews with her. Heather, you mentioned that, that there are a lot of Q and A's with her in Europe as far as I remember, she spoke really good English. She actually went to uh, school for typing and uh, worked at a British consulate, if memory serves. So she she knew how to speak English. And so I'm sure there are more English interviews with her out there as well. Because when she and Waters, they've been interviewed together and she spoke English on those. It's interesting if you look at her IMDb page, the, where she has appeared as herself, the Merv Griffin show. She apparently was on in 1969 alongside Jackie. Oh my Mason. God. Oh my God. I would love to see that. I would love, love to see it. And it shows she's also on the uh, Argentinian exploitation uh, segment of the Mondo Macabro supplements that are on some of those discs of theirs where they concentrate on one country or another. She is interviewed on one of those as well. And she just passed away last year, if memory serves. So she had a nice, long life, long yeah. career. And there was yeah, plenty of information about her. So it's not like it's not like we're talking about some starlet from the 1930s, you know, <laughs> where where you can't see interviews with them, where you can't find information about them. But it is difficult to put your hands on stuff. And, yeah, just finding actual uh, articles written written about Sarley and, and Armando Bo 
were pretty difficult unless you were looking in like the zine world and just seeing people that were coming to these movies for the first time and just being like, oh my God, you have to see this, which is our reaction exactly. It looks like the last thing she was interviewed for was a documentary last year called Zombies in the Sugarcane Field about an Argentinian zombie film before Night of the Living Dead. Uh, she was not, doesn't appear that she was in that movie, but for some reason she is uh, interviewed in it. I read uh, one article which kept trying to conflate her career with uh, the career of Ava Peron and or Ava Duarte at the time, and just that they were rivals. And then I was looking up their ages, and I'm like, well, actually, Ava was uh, 20 years older than Isabel. I don't think that they're running in the same circles. No, I was about to say the timeline doesn't. No, it doesn't jive at all. No. Well, one thing um, I noticed, I was just curious, like to get you your guys' input on is, um, you know, I was trying to think of other films of this genre that have sort of a blatantly Catholic kind of guilt angle with, and because the only one that came to my mind directly was um, for all you Timothy Carey fans out there. Like when his film Bayou was re-released as Poor White Trash, there was extra footage shot to make it more titillating. And part of that footage was uh, the lead character gets viciously raped in the mud and uh, ends up going to church and praying. Like you see lots of religious statues. It's very ominous feeling, um, or at least ominous for those of us who don't like church, I guess. <laughs> but uh, but I was trying to think of other other films. I mean, there are definitely other Catholic filmmakers in sexploitation, but um, but I couldn't really think of a lot of films that had that blatant angle. But I may be missing some big ones. I don't know. What do you guys think? I can't think of any offhand. Yeah, I feel like I just don't know enough about the the genre to even begin to to speak to it cuz like I'm thinking of other Catholic countries and maybe what their exploitation films were like and if they had that same innate guilt to it. It's interesting that it's an American film. You're talking about uh, Bayou slash Poor White Trash that put that in there because I mean, obviously we have a lot of guilty um <laughs> guilty religious people around here. Most of them are going to get away with a lot of crimes, but um, we don't have that as part <laughs> oh. of our, uh, you know, the, it's not a, a thread that is wound as tight with our tapestry as, say, like a, a Spain or a Poland or a, a, an Argentina or even, um, I think, Brazil as well or Mexico. Right. Well, th- and that explains why you don't really, when you think of, like, say, because maybe the closest thing is in the 70s, you had, like, the nunsploitation subgenre but that was pretty much exclusively european you know or or in some i think there's some from latin america too but like not really america also the poor white trash edit what's what's kind of hilarious about that footage spliced in is the scene right after the her praying after being raped is the character that supposedly we just saw get raped sees ulysses who supposedly is the character that just raped her obviously it's not the same actors and he's all like marie come tell vous baby oh jesus <laughs> and, and she and she just looks irritated with them like she doesn't look scared or pissed she's just like what do you want ulysses like it's so <laughs> It just always makes me laugh. Like, this is why you gotta love exploitation uh, tactics with cinema. It's just some of it, just some of the additions just become Dada almost. They have detourned the film. Though the poor white trash edit, the, uh, they do some editing tweaking with the infamous uh, Cajun dance scene with Timothy Carey, and they actually make it longer. 
Oh, which, thank you. Good. Which makes my, actually, so it's my favorite edit just for that. Timothy Carey dancing is always a gift from God to you, so. Oh, nothing beats him in World's Greatest Center, though. Oh, I know. Where's the criterion of that? Like, I know. Wes Anderson. I want Timothy Carey. <laughs> totally agree. Oh, I'm sure Romeo's holding out for some good deals, though. Yeah. Get our fingers crossed. 2020. I mean, this could be the year. All right, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at Ephraim Kishan's The Big Dig. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Rod and Heather. Rod, what has been keeping you busy? I have been through quite a year transformatively in life, but uh, I'm getting back to writing more reviews regularly at flickattack.com. Also working on reviews for Film International every now and then, and due out in 2020. Sometime later this year, I have an essay in a book about David Fincher's Zodiac that's coming out. Uh, but my chapter is on a Zodiac killer, the 1971 exploitation film. So that'll be out sometime this year. But um, that's kind of my life at the moment. I normally wouldn't buy that book because I haven't, I'm not familiar with the Fincher version, but knowing that you, Rod, are writing about the 1970 film, which I am familiar with because, of course, I am. I want this book in my life right now. That is awesome. I can't wait to read that. The whole book covers, I mean, it's mostly on Fincher is what, I'm, is what the editor has told me, but there's a section on pre-Fincher Zodiac films, and that I got assigned to do the one on Zodiac Killer. Interviewed Tom Hansen, and, and uh, it oh, should man. be great. That is so cool. That makes me happy. I live in a world where that's going to, that exists. And Heather, when you're not out there getting nominated for Rondos, what are you doing? Uh, Mike, thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> the Rondos. Well, 
for all you music lovers and white punks on dope, part three of my ongoing article miniseries on the tubes is live over at diabolicmagazine.com. This time around, I explore the band's underrated third album now. And speaking of article series, I just finished the newest installment of The Rocket Files, my personal tribute and deep dive into the career of the late, great Charles Rocket. Uh, So keep your eyes peeled over at mondoheather.com for this and other benign goodies. Those are great. Those those Rocket articles, I have to hand it to you. Those are great. Oh, my God. Thank you. He is. I've always, always been... I don't know if fan is the right word, but I've just always been intrigued since I saw him on SNL in the day that one year, but, and he'd pop up here and there, but that, I mean, you, you really do an excellent oh, job. Oh, thank that. you so much. That, that means a lot to me because it's, it's, you know, obviously it's a, it's a big uh, work of love and also just kind of like delving into his like aspects of his career. Cause like this piece that's going to be going live on the site here, probably actually later today or tomorrow, it's about he was on this uh, New York public access show called TV Party, which was this super cool. Yeah, like Glenn O'Brien hosted it, and they'd have you know people like Chris Stein and Debbie Harry, uh, Jean Michel Basquiat, Kathy Acker was in the audience of the particular audio, like episode I'm reviewing, and Charles like was semi regular on this, and this was the time period right after he'd gotten fired from SNL. That's the thing a lot of a lot of people don't really realize like his just ties to like the art world and the post-punk world and um, just such a cool guy. It's, it's definitely, you know, I'm hoping to kind of delve more. I could, I've only ever found one interview with Charles Rocket online and it's just like a quote from him and from an issue of people magazine. And I just think that's so weird because Rocket did so much. Like he had a pretty steady career. And such a tragic end to his life. But no, thank you so much. I, I definitely that that makes me very happy to hear. So um, hopefully, you kind of keep keep the preservation flame going for the man. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. <laughs>
to town It wasn't me that started that old crazy Asian war But I was proud to go and do my patriotic chore Yes, it's true that I'm not the man I used to be I still need some company It's hard to love a man whose legs were bent and paralyzed And the wants and the needs of a woman your age Really I realize But it won't be long I've heard them say Until I'm not around Don't take your love to town Even now, cause I just heard the slamming of the door The way I know I've heard it slam 100 times before And if I could move, I'd get my gun and put her in the ground Take your love to town For God's sakes, turn around If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.